Well, this afternoon, I'd like us to look at what the Bible teaches about worship, and particularly we'll be considering uh, public worship. You know, what, is Christ, what does Christmas do? What's the point? It is that God would save us from our sins through coming into this world according to the person of his son and redeem us. Why? That we might worship. That we might worship him in all of our lives, but we might also worship him as we assemble together as his people. And so, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to John 4, which is a very important passage about worship in the New Testament. And the context is, if you remember, the Samaritan woman comes to Christ and she has really good questions. She has questions for him about salvation, and she also has a question for him about worship. How should I approach God as a Samaritan? How do we approach the one true God? What do you say? And so let's read what Jesus says in response, particularly to her question about worship in John 4, verses 20 through 26. Jesus says, or rather, the woman asks, or mentions, our father worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So that's her question. Where do we worship? On this mountain or in Jerusalem? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. That's not a derogatory word, remember. In the Bible, woman really means ma'am. It's like a, a term of respect, ma'am, or lady, in the sense of uh, a title, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And that's what we're going to focus on, particularly worshiping in truth And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So here Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah. So several things going on here in this passage. One thing we can notice is that Jesus is combining spirit and truth in worship. Why does he do that? Well, the Samaritans worshiped emotionally. They, they had all sorts of emotional, ecstatic worship practices on a mountain. Pagans always worshiped on mountains. Uh, but G, uh, the, the Jews worshiped, according to the Old Covenant, on the Mount of God in Zion, in Jerusalem, the, the true mountain. And they didn't worship ecstatically or emotionally like the pagans did. They worshiped according to what God said, or at least they, sh- they were supposed to. They didn't actually do that very faithfully if you look at it. And yet, their form and order of worship was supposed to be according to what God had revealed. And what Jesus says is that neither uh, alone by themselves is good, but rather we need both. We need emotion that's not ecstatic, but sincere and from the heart. So worship uh, in spirit, and that's talking about our spirit, and in truth according to what God says. What is his truth? Thy word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. And so, in light of this text, I'd like us to consider and answer a a few questions 
about worship. First, what is worship? And we'll look at that briefly. And then second, uh, what is worshiping in truth? And that's where we'll spend most of our time this morning. What is worshiping in, or this afternoon, what is worshiping in truth? And then third, very briefly, what is worshiping in spirit? So first, consider what is worship. Well, verse 23 says that true worshipers will worship the Father. What is worship? It's the worship of the one true God. Worship isn't about us. It's not about what we do per se. It is, but it's not in the end about us. It's about worshiping the Father, God alone. And if you look up the word for worship in the New Testament, the Greek word, it's, there are a couple different form, words that are used for worship. One of them is proskuneo, which means to bow down. And so it's a, that's a symbol of what real worship is. What are we doing if we bow down? Well, we're symbolizing our humility and the greatness of another. They bowed down before kings in the scriptures. And we are to bow down before the Lord saying, you are our king, our Lord, our highest sovereign, and we humble ourselves before you. And so proskuneo means to bow down, but it can also have a, a gloss, meaning the same word can, can also mean to kiss the hand. Maybe you've seen this in, in the movies. We don't have anything like this in the United States anymore. It would, it would revolt us to see this happen. But nobility, kings, queens, when they sat on their throne or they're in their court or really wherever, you kneel and you kiss their hand. You can see it sometimes in, in the English monarchy. Even though that's just a constitutional monarchy, that happens still. They kneel. But you have to be permitted to do that. And that's what worship is, that the Lord grants us access to himself, not only to bow down, but to kiss the hand of God. There's another word in Greek, latria, which means to pay homage or to render honor, to show honor to God. What is honor? It means to regard with weight and import. He is the highest honor. What has he done? Everything. What is he doing? He's upholding, directing, governing all things. He saves us. He made us. And so what's the only right response? Well, many people today would say praise. Well, yes, we praise him. Certainly, the Psalms are full of that, and the New Testament is. But the most fundamental response is honor. Look what he's done. He is of great weight. So we bow before him and ascribe to him worth, worthiness, worthy as a Lord who has made all things and rescued us from our sins. We honor him. So that's what verse 23 tells us about worship. True worshipers worship the Father, but also it says the Father is seeking worshipers. This is, I don't want to make too much of this, but you see what you think. Doesn't it imply that Worship is a response to God seeking us. I mean, you could say, if you weren't reading the whole New Testament and the whole book of John, well, maybe he's looking for people who will worship him, but that's not what this is about. He initiates. He seeks. We're not seekers. Actually, no one seeks God. That's Romans 3. There's none who seeks God, not even one. But God seeks us. And as a response, we worship him. 
Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 confirms. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice the beginning of the verses. By the mercies of God, I appeal to you. He seeks us. Begins with his mercy, his grace, and our response is to worship him. Now, there's an important distinction about worship in the scriptures. We could use, we could distinguish it with these two words, and these come from John Murray. There's generic worship, and there's specific worship. You could call it whatever you want, but that's what he says. Basically, it's that there is a general worship that's generic that we are to do in all of life. The Bible clearly teaches this, doesn't it? Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So you go to the grocery store to the glory of God. You know, you eat your, your meal in the evening to the glory of God with a grateful heart, honoring him. You, you watch football to the glory of God. There's a way not to do all those things to the glory of God, right? But that's how we're to do it, all of them in worship. There's another example of generic or general worship in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So in our callings and and the places where God has put us, and what are the, the main estates or callings that we have, they're our family, our vocation in the world, and also our church. Those are the three callings. That's where we're to worship God, generally speaking, uh, and, and represent him in the way that we speak and live and honor and glorify him from our hearts with gratitude and faith and joy. So that's general worship. But what is specific worship? Specific worship has to do with formal worship. So there are forms of worship that God has prescribed that we must practice. So we know what these are. This is the public reading of scripture, the preaching of the word, uh, the hearing of the word, the receiving of the ordinances, um, the prayers. It's uh, singing with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. All those things, plus whatever I've not mentioned, are all part of uh, corporate worship, the giving of offerings. That's specific worship. And the Bible actually teaches that when the church gathers, Christ is in our midst. The church gathered is the true temple of God. There he is in our midst. He's with us. He's observing. Actually, if you remember, Hebrews 2.12 says he's participating in our worship. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Jesus is the one who preaches. If it's true preaching, I hope I preach truly, but... That's the only way he can preach to you, is if what I'm saying is what is true from the word, you see? And if that happens, if I am preaching the truth, if whoever stands before you preaches the truth, it is Christ because it's his truth, isn't it? It's him preaching. The same when it comes to singing. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Who sings? Well, we sing to each other, but who? by whose spirit and in whose name it's all Christ. And so when we, the idea is that when you sing in the congregation, you're hearing the voices of your brothers and sisters, but really it's the spirit of Christ singing 
That's what congregational singing is about. We hear Jesus sing. He inhabits our praises, so to speak. And so that's where we see what worship is. There's a general worship, but there's a special worship, a particular specific worship that's when the church is gathered. But second, let's consider what it means to worship in the truth. If you look back again in John 4, he says... You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers. What does that imply? There are false worshipers. But true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. So let's consider what it means to worship in the truth. Now, the context of John 4 is not general worship. That's important to remember. The Samaritan's not asking, how do we love God and obey him in all of our lives? She's asking about formal, special worship, specific worship. Now, historically, there's a disagreement about the nature of public worship. Do you remember? The Anglicans taught that as long as the Bible doesn't prohibit something, and as long as really for them it would be the, the minister and the, the church, they would say proper, which is the ministerial class, decides to do that's consistent with the Bible and church tradition. That's what we do. And that's called the normative principle, meaning they're keeping norms with the past. So if you go back to the medieval church, uh, the Anglicans' forms of worship are very similar to late medieval Christianity. So it's, a very, it's this very traditional uh, Roman Catholic, uh, what Roman Catholics today practice. So that's, that's the normative principle. But the Reformed churches believe this, that whatever is not instituted, whatever elements are not instituted by the Bible are forbidden. That's, that's the short of it. That biblical worship is limited by God's revealed will. Now, what, what, what Reformation principle is that? Sola Scriptura. The Bible alone teaches us what is true, how to approach God in worship. We, we're not innovators, and we, we're not traditionalists. We believe what Scripture says about how we're to draw near to God in worship. And this is, also, this is called the Reformed regulative principle of worship, worship in truth. His word is truth. Now, for reference, our Confession of Faith, the Second London Confession, teaches this. I want to read what it says. See if you can see it in here. Chapter 22, paragraph 1 says, The light of nature shows that there is a God. Isn't that true? Who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared. Why? Because he reveals himself in nature as a God to be feared. It is therefore to be loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and soul, with all the might. So that's what nature reveals. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God, and what this means is in the special sense, in the specific sense, is instituted by God himself. God institutes 
the acceptable way of worshiping himself. And so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed, not prescribed in Holy Scripture. And then uh, chapter 22, paragraph 5 says, the reading of the Scriptures, preaching, so it's going to list elements, different elements of worship. The reading of Scriptures, preaching, hearing of the Word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of religious worship. And you say, well, that, that sounds weird. Why would it say religious worship? <clears throat> Isn't it, you know, what's, why, why not just say worship? Why say religious worship? Because the formal worship of the church is revealed covenantally and is religious in that sense. That's what the confession means when it says that. Are all parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, godly fear, moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgiving upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. Now, some people think, okay, that's restrictive. Do you feel that way? Do you ever think that? Wow, that, that is really limiting. It almost it makes God into a, a stingy God who, who doesn't want us just to express sincerely worship to him. Why is God restricting it just to these elements? Isn't that binding of our consciences and limiting of our freedom? But actually, the opposite is true. This is a very important fact. The regulative principle is a doctrine of Christian liberty. Because sola scriptura is a doctrine of liberty. The Bible alone binds the conscience. Therefore, the Bible alone binds what your pastors can tell you to do in worship. Have you thought of that? I mean, what, I'll just, I know of a church, uh, I won't name names, but there's just nowhere around here that, uh, the pastors led the whole congregation in doing the hokey pokey. How would you like that? How would your conscience feel about putting your right arm in and right arm out? And doing that. And, and your pastors are making you. Because everyone's doing it and we're here telling you how you're going to feel. Like a, Who's binding whose liberty here? There's another instance where a few years ago, you can find this on the internet, worship leaders of a very prominent church led everyone, led the whole church during Christmas in singing Frozen's Let It Go. Everyone was supposed to sing Let It Go. How would you like that? You know, pastors usually implement these kinds of things I'm just telling you a secret of the trade. To appeal to more people. To increase the sizes of their congregations and also their own salaries. This isn't because the pastors think it's fun. They do it because they want buildings, budgets, and baptisms. But the regulative principle 
teaches you're free from any elements of worship that the Bible doesn't institute. Ezekiel 34 verse 2 says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? How do the shepherds feed the flock? By doing what God says. Giving them the elements that he commands. And no more. And so there we've seen that the Reformed tradition and our confession of faith teaches the regulative principle, but does the Bible teach it? That's what matters. Does the Bible teach this? Well, to understand this doctrine biblically, we have to start out bigger in a broader picture and understand it's actually a covenantal doctrine. The regulative principle of worship is based on the Bible's covenant theology. And here's what that means. There, there is one kind of law in the Bible that is rooted in God's character that transcends all covenants because it's a reflection of God. That's moral, natural law summarized in the Ten Commandments. Those cut through the whole Bible. But some laws change. Those are laws that are called positive laws because God posited them. He, he decreed them. The word posit means to assert. So a positive law is an asserted law in a covenant. And what laws come to mind in the old covenant particularly? Well, you have judicial laws that are about the the management of that nation, but the ceremonial worship laws are prominent in the positive laws of the old covenant, which are about the priesthood and the sacrificial system and, and the whole manner of the temple and all of those ordinances of old covenant worship. But Hebrews 7.12 says this, where there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law. The old covenant had the Levitical priests. The new covenant has Jesus Christ, who's after the order of Melchizedek. The, The worship laws change. Do you see? Because the covenants changed. Hebrews 9.1 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness implying that just as the second covenant has regulations, so even the first one did. They're different, though. So a clear understanding of the Bible's teaching on law and covenants helps us to understand the regulative principle. We're no longer old covenant worship forms, but we're under a new covenant worship forms. So let's consider first some of the old covenant worship and that that was part of the regulative principle, the old covenant. You were to do what God says and not add to it. In the old covenant, same is true in the new. But let's see it in the old first. Uh, Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. If you can turn quickly, you can turn to all these. Otherwise, I trust you to just to listen to, 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 to me read them. But Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2, that's the story of Nadab and Abihu. These were the sons of Aaron, Old Testament priests, and they offered strange fire in public worship to God. And here's what it says. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer. What is that? That's a smoking, it's an implement that you put incense in and it smokes from incense. They swing them, you know. Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense in it and offered unauthorized fire. 
That's an important phrase. What do they offer to God? Unauthorized fire that was not permitted, was not given authority to be offered, which he had not commanded them. And then what happened? Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You think, well, that's very petty. Really? I mean, God said, do this, and they did a different thing, and God killed them for it. Because the positive laws of a covenant come with a force of God said do it. Thus, to violate it is moral. It's actually a high moral transgression, breaking the first commandment. Then Deuteronomy 12 is another example. In verses 13 and 14, God says, Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see. So what what are we talking about? Burnt offerings. What are those? Positive laws of the old covenant. Worship law. Burnt offerings. But at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I'm commanding you. So God says there's a particular place to do it not just anywhere you want. And then here's what he says in verse 32. Everything that I command to you, and it's still in the context of worship, everything that I command to you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. You shall not add to what God commands you to do in worship. That's the old covenant regulative principle. Then there's the familiar story of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6, verses 5 to 7. And it says, And David and all the house of Israel, so it's corporate, were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourine. Now when it says before the Lord in the Old Testament, that means temple worship. You don't ever just do it before the Lord like, in the, like just looking up. Before the Lord is before the place of his presence manifest, which is the temple. So they were doing temple worship here. And they, you know, they were celebrating and worshiping, and they came to the fleshing, threshing floor. Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there before the ark of the Lord. So you think... He was just trying to save the ark from falling off the cart. Well, they shouldn't have had it on the cart. God never said put it on a cart. He said put it on poles, and they did it wrong, and Uzzah stuck his hand out because he thought, this is R.C. Sproul, he says he thought his hand was cleaner than the dirt. And rebelled against God and was struck dead for not doing what God said. We could keep adding to these examples, but that's Old Covenant. But what about the New Covenant? So Old Covenant is establishing truth and reality, and there are harsh penalties to make the point and actually to be a type. God could kill us today for doing more than what he commands. He would be totally just. But the Old Covenant was holy and distinct, and yet he was teaching a lesson. So now let's consider New Covenant worship. The regulations for worship changed under the new covenant, but the God who regulates worship did not change. It's important to remember. He's just as serious about the new covenant laws as he was about the old covenant ones, because he gives them. 
So under the old covenant, before Christ came, God's people worshiped in the temple according to types and ceremonies. But now in the new covenant, we have the reality like we saw this morning. The Old Testament is types and shadows and forms and images. The new covenant is the substance. We see Jesus come. And so our worship elements reflect that. What do we do in new covenant worship that's different? We don't have forms and shadows because we've seen the reality. He's come and manifested himself, and the scripture has, has written about, he's been, he's been written about through the apostles by the inspiration of the Spirit, and we look at him because he is the reality. John 4 speaks of this change in worship. Remember in verse 21 of our text, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The old covenant shadow will go away. You'll not worship in Jerusalem. Now, the book of Hebrews says that the laws regulating the worship of the first covenant have been fulfilled in Christ and abolished. Hebrews 7, verses 18 and 19, a former commandment is set aside and a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15 says, Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is a leader in the church of Ephesus. He's, he, he's serving in a pastoral uh, office. I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Why did Paul write Timothy? To teach him how the church was to be ordered according to the laws of the new covenant, the positive laws of the new covenant in light of the coming of Jesus. There's a certain way to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And what's the household of God? The church. The church gathered particularly because it's the household of God. Is a, it's an image for the temple. What's the temple? Well, our bodies are the temple individually, but manifestly and expressly when we're gathered together to worship him as his people. And so both old and new covenants teach the regulative principle of worship. But now consider some passages of the new covenant that teach this. You can see it in Colossians 2, verses 20 to 23. It says, if, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Remember what I said religion is about? It is about formal corporate worship. There was a heresy in the book of Colossae where they were practicing uh, pagan asceticism, uh, Jewish forms of worship that were distorted by their paganism, and they were trying to introduce this into the church. Gathered. Self-made religion. Other translations say will worship or worship according to the innovations of our own will. This is forbidden. There is no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Of course, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for adding human commandments to what God says. In vain do they worship me, talk, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. And so that's a general principle. We're never to replace what God says with human innovation, man-made traditions. And so what is commanded in the new covenant? 
Well, 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's in a, a book about how we're to order ourselves in the church. Devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Matthew 6.9, pray then like this. Paul says that holy men are, are men are to lift holy hands in prayer. Commands us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians 3.16 Baptism is commanded. The Lord's Supper is commanded. Tithes and offerings. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Even public confessions of faith. 1 Timothy 3.16, right after saying that there's a way to conduct yourself in the household of God, says, great indeed, we confess as a mystery of godliness. And then we have an early confession of faith in the Bible. We're to confess the faith with one another. And so those are some of the elements of new covenant worship. But we need to know one more thing that's important about this to understand it. We have to know the difference between a circumstance and an element. Okay? So elements are the things that God commands for us to practice in worship that are revealed in the new covenant. That's an element. But circumstances are occasions or not secondary matters, but attending matters of worship that may vary from church to church. And they depend on wisdom. They depend on human wisdom to order. So here's what it says in the Second London Confession, chapter 1, paragraph 6. There are some circumstances concerning, hear the word circumstances, concerning the worship of God, and the government of the church common to human actions and societies. So you see these circumstances in all kinds of human societies, in in various clubs out there, in the government. You see it in families. Things aren't revealed in the Bible, but that you have to do uh, to order it. Common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature. That's general revelation and Christian prudence or wisdom according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. And th- this is, of course, just what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians fourteen forty. all things should be done decently and in order. It doesn't tell us exactly what that means, but it implies there's some way to think about what's decent and in order to do this, Right? So what are circumstances? They're things like the lights. The pews is a circumstance. The Bible doesn't command pews. Do we have to have pews? No, but they work. We use them. You know, the windows, the air conditioning, the length of the sermon is a circumstance. The style of the sermon, the times that we meet for public worship on the Lord's Day. The exact times are circumstances. Some of the details of the administration of the Lord's Supper are circumstances. And so the light of nature and wisdom determine the circumstances of church government. We need to understand this, that circumstances must support the elements. The moment a circumstance overcomes the element or crushes it or makes it hard to, to do or pay attention to or is distracting from the element, that circumstance becomes an element. And so circumstances by nature must be muted and in the background and not overpowering. So 
you know, there, there are various examples we could give of this, but an obvious one is music in church. What's commanded? To speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that we sing as a church. That's the element. Now, we're, the circumstance could be, a, could be musical accompaniment. We see that all through the Bible. We even see it in the book of Revelation. That's great. The word psalm, to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the word psalm means to play upon the string. So instruments are not forbidden. They're part of, ordinarily part of worship, but they aren't, they aren't elemental. They're circumstantial, and they should never overcome the congregational singing or drown it out. What else could overcome or drown out the element? Well, how, some preaching styles can do that. What if, what if the preacher is way overly dramatic or way overly just dull and distracting because he's, he's not doing what he's called to do? You see how both those can distract from the element. And so uh, decorations, we can have certain kinds of decorations, but they must not take our eye or our attention or be a thing that we pay attention to. Otherwise, they're overcoming the element. So we're considering circumstances. Also, circumstances should always serve the particular church where they're practiced. Some churches may have conditions and needs that other churches don't have. Another thing to note is that a church's historically practiced traditions should influence its circumstances. And there might be one, more than one way to do something. We might not have to have pews, but we have pews. Why change it? It's a good way of doing something. Unless you can think of a theological reason not to, let's just keep it the same. That way we don't divide over secondary matters. This is what splits churches, you know? We want to do it this way. We don't just depend on individual preferences. We try to keep circumstances circumstantial, really supporting the elements, but keep them the same. And that's actually a principle in the New Testament as well about, uh, he says, we have no such practice among us. And 1 Corinthians 14 regarding the head coverings and taking them off, that was a symbol in that day. And so there's a tradition there when it comes to circumstances. And so we have seen here what it means to worship in truth. Lastly, and just very briefly here, none of this means anything if it's not accompanied by worship in spirit. Because we can come together and do all the right forms, but if our heart isn't engaged, and we aren't worshiping from our hearts, that is in true faith. I'm not talking about emotionalism. I'm talking about true faith and sincerity. None of it, the external forms mean anything. It's all sin, actually. This, per, this people draws near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We're not to do that. David speaks of spiritual worship in Psalm 45.1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. Psalm 103.1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Psalm 51.17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So we're to come to the Lord with a broken spirit. What does that mean? Say, okay, that's very poetic. Well, it means a spirit of faith. You're broken of yourself, knowing what's right in your own mind, coming to receive God's truth that is out of his word, and to bow to it, to draw near to him as the one true God, to believe him. Stephen Charnock says this about worship. 
Without the heart, it is no worship. It is a stage play, an acting part without being that person really, uh, which is acted by us. A hypocrite. In the notion of the word, it is a stage player. We may be truly said to worship God, though we lack perfection, but we cannot be said to worship him if we lack sincerity. There has to be some truth in our worship, real sincerity to some degree. And that's what it is to worship in, in, in spirit, that we look to Jesus, that we believe him, Christ and him crucified and risen. We see our sins before a holy God and his mercy and grace to buy us and to rule us. And we come in submission by faith because he's good and he's proven it by all that he's done. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for saving us and for granting us access to your courts for the corporate worship of the church. I thank you, God, for this church and her desire to be faithful to you in this regard. Help us to continue in truth and in spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.